When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Lowdown with Brave Mama. This is your host, Steph Thompson. And this week, we are going to continue the theme that recognises and acknowledges Birth Trauma Awareness Week. Now, even though it's a designated one week out of the year, we feel that it's something that can continually be talked about 365 days of the year. And today on the show, you are going to hear from a beautiful woman called Sandy, who I met some time ago. She is an amazing human being. She's a podcast host. She has her own magazine for women beyond 40. She talks about all things menopause, women's health, pelvic health. And so there's lots of synergy between both of our podcasts. I love that Sandy is able to share her story with so much heart. She also then talks about the practical things that we could be doing to try to avoid having to tell these stories anymore. So tune into this episode if you would like to find out more about how we work towards the future for our girls and to make this childbirth space better. Let's get into our chat with Sandy. Sandy, I have been waiting to have you on the show. And for everyone, I was lucky enough to be a guest on your podcast, The Good Girl Confessional, which is amazing. So welcome to The Lowdown with Brave Mama. So great to see you. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm super excited. I just couldn't wait this morning. Honestly, I was like, yes, it's happening. I loved having you on my podcast. You are such an incredible person. Your story is amazing. So thanks for having me here. Too kind, too kind you are. (laughs) Well, I want to jump straight in actually, because I know that we are, you know, joking and we're really excited to be here, but what we have to talk about today can actually be quite heavy. And our intention is for anyone listening is that by the end of it, you are educated and have a better understanding of people's journeys. However, at any point, if you are feeling that listening to Sandy's story or parts of my story is too much for you, we would suggest that you press pause, come back at a later time, or if you need to skip it for now, then that's all right too. So it's just nice to let people know that I think Sandy, as a podcast host, you would know that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I know, you know, with yours, as you say, sometimes the subject matter is intense because it's so real and raw. And even over on mine, I think it's so lovely that you give those warnings to people so they can prepare themselves. Yeah. Without scaring them. Like I just think it's not all doom and gloom. We have some amazing things to talk about. So let's get started. Now, Sandy, I know you are a mama bear, but I would am interested to know who you were before becoming a mum. Oh, that's a great question. Let's see. Well, I've been, I guess I'm a woman who's always worn a lot of hats. Like that is true. But who was I before I became someone's mother? I was always interested in theatre. 
I was always a writer. Those are the things that really deeply defined me as a child and into teenagehood and young adulthood. I think I always had a creative soul and I was always questing for like a creative outlet. And I think probably I have passed that on to my three kids because they all became theatre nerds at school as well. And, uh, and, <laughs> and we're involved in acting and, or, and dancing and, and lots of things. I mean, sport as well, don't get me wrong, but yeah, I did pass that on to them. But that's who I was beforehand. I actually thought I was going, when I was a teenager, I thought I was going to be a rock journalist. That's what oh. I really wanted to be. Yeah, yes. pretty cool. Cool cat. Yes. I did my work experience. You know, we used to do that back in the yes, day. Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> at Eon FM, which was Melbourne's first uh, FM radio station. And I thought I was absolutely mega cool. I did not go on to be a rock journo, but I still have an absolute passion and love for music with very eclectic tastes. So oh, there you go. I love that. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about your journey to motherhood with three children. Yeah, I will add that my three babies are now grown-ups. They're bona fide adults, so which is incredible. And I feel enormously proud that I've managed to guide these people to be the incredible humans they are now. I feel very lucky. But my journey to motherhood started really quite young. I got married extremely young. And uh, by the time I was 21, I'm pregnant. I had already been through miscarriages mm-hmm. at that point and a miscarriage before this child and then after. So there's been okay. a lot of that. And I know there will be some of your listeners hearing this who yeah. will have gone through that journey and it's quite tough. I was, a, you know, as I said, quite a young mum. So I had my child just shy of 22, okay. turning 22. He is my pride and joy. I fall pregnant. I thought everything was going to be so easy, Stephanie, because as we do, and I was young and fit and all of those things. Yes. And so I went off to all of my obstetric appointments. They said, yeah, this is all textbook. You're fine. You're fine. Okay, Um, good. I I loved being pregnant. I will say I'm one of those women that some people do love to hate because through three pregnancies, I never had any morning sickness extremely lucky on that front Mm. but I you know I suffered in other ways I wasn't the world's best carrier we'll say that okay so so clearly having been through miscarriages I always wondered my firstborn was a boy so I did always wonder if those first two miscarriages were girls because you know how do we know and one of the miscarriages that I had was quite late on so 16 weeks so that's quite difficult because I think for most of us we wait obviously until we're 12 weeks we sort of tell people and then I lost that baby and then was pregnant not too long sort of after because it's 16 weeks I mean I know it's even it's for some women at 16 hours they find out they're pregnant they're already attached to that little thing in their belly 12 weeks 16 weeks 36 weeks your heart still breaks right exactly the same your heart doesn't get any more feel the more full the more you go on it's your baby so yeah right yeah yeah wow and I'm it's, sorry it's for a, that. thank you thanks Stephanie but it's it's you know at the time and anyone going through that will will know this as well it's such a loss but it's a loss we often don't talk enough about because Never. there's a lot of women I have met 
who, you know, because I have talked about it openly, that's encouraged them to be able to say, oh, I had multiple miscarriages or I had one miscarriage, whatever it may be. That loss is very real for women and also too for their partners who I think in particular don't really have a platform to talk about that. They've lost their child as well. And even though as women and men, we may deal with it in very different ways. Yeah. It does really impact for sure. Just on that, why do you think it it is a secret? Like, why do you think we have to feel like we have to not share it with people that we've had a miscarriage or that it's a taboo thing to talk about? Like, why are we ashamed that a baby didn't make it to the world? As if it was our fault, ridiculously. I love that question so much, like so much, because I've always been a person who will tackle taboo, supposedly taboo subjects and just put it out there in the, into the universe. I think the reason why a lot of issues to do with women's health, and that includes childbirth, that includes miscarriage, that includes pregnancy, really comes down to this whole notion that women shouldn't really have A, autonomy over our own bodies. There's a lot of people out there telling us what to do. That we are sort of taught from a very young age that we shouldn't have that autonomy over our own bodies. But also too, there is this societal notion that as women, we are just meant to do certain things, one of which is to go out into the world, to produce children and to just pop out these babies, anything that goes off script for women. So when anything goes wrong, there is this societal sort of pressure that goes on that somehow it's our fault or that somehow sweep it under the rug it makes people uncomfortable we shouldn't be having that conversation right yes but in sweeping that under the rug what we do is cause I think so much more harm because when women go through as you know yourself when you go through a miscarriage when you go through any sort of birth trauma when we don't talk about this stuff what we do is we take their hurt we take the pain the both the physical pain and also the emotional pain and we tell women just bury it deep down inside and get on with it get on with it right just get on with it because as women this is what we're told. We hear this constant narrative of women just give birth in fields and women get on with it. The pain and loss of any child is real. And I think in the not talking about it, a few things happen. I think for some women, that also means they can't talk to their partners about it. Yeah. But their partners don't talk to them about it. This causes kind of this silence. silence and and there's so much pain that dwells I think in those silences when this stuff happens of not being able to discuss it talk about it say this is how I feel I think things are slowly getting better that's my opinion yeah I I feel that too yeah a bit of an inertia with social media change you know like absolutely talking about periods pregnancy menopause all of that is coming it's still yes. coming. We're not there yet. I think we're on our way, but you're right. There's so much work in this space that needs to be done. And so, which is why I'm really grateful for people like your good self, because I talk about menopause. I bang on about menopause every day. I don't think there's a day that passes where it doesn't come up in some conversation I'm having. Sure. I, I think that is so important, but I wish that if, had I been doing this sort of stuff, had I been podcasting, had I been publishing a magazine, when I was younger and having my children, I I think, I often think about this, would I have been discussing these issues? Would I have been talking about birth trauma? Would I have been talking about 
periods. I probably would have when I look back to my mm. earlier writing. I was quite happily writing about vaginas and saying the word vagina and vulva as often as I could. People Amazing. thought I was a little bit of a rebel because of that. And I did get kicked off Facebook, by the way, Stephanie, back in the day, many times because what? I wrote articles <laughs> like Love Me, Love My Vagina. And uh, yeah, so I, uh, I was banned oh, from Facebook a number of times. So things are changing. They are changing because I'm seeing more and more women write about this stuff, embrace this stuff, talk about it. So many incredible female podcasters like yourself who are advocates in this space and saying we can't just keep being silent. But I yeah. think to answer your question, I think we have to start breaking down those societal views that we should just anything to do with women and our health or our body autonomy should be locked away behind a door and the key thrown away. We have to break the door down. I love that breaking the door down. Do you know, I read something just this week, Sandy, that made me furious, like beyond furious, was that a recent study in the States has shown that less than, less than 1% of medical research dollars goes into female pelvic health after they already take out female oncology. So they're researching ovarian cancer, amazing, but then it's less than 1% of research dollars. With 50% of our population being female and mm -hmm. one in two of those women experiencing pelvic organ prolapse, I think it's up to about one in three with birth trauma. How are we only spending less than 1%? I think I said this on your podcast. There is more research dollars in male erector dysfunction. There you have it. <laughs> what? <laughs> I want to say what I want to say, but I won't do those expletives. I'm just going, what? <laughs> I'll try very hard not to swear on your podcast. I will. <laughs> I um... have bombs here and there. Because totally <laughs> uh, this stuff makes me yeah. livid. Yeah. There is an extraordinary documentary called The Bleeding Edge that talks about, in America, medical devices and how they get approved over there. And in that documentary, they do talk about how a lot of these medical devices that were created for women were never tested on women. And the reason that they're not tested on women, it's bizarre. It's like medicines for women, by the way, hormone treatment for women, hormone treatment for women is not tested on women. What are they That's testing it on? I know that sounds really dumb, but is it animals or men? It's tested or on both. men. It gets tested on animals. If it's hormones, I think generally animals, but it, it just blows my mind how little money goes into the research and development for female health. It is extraordinary. And it's criminal in a way because governments bang on about wanting to save dollars, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, but if they were actually putting that money into funding medical research on women's health and creating drugs that specifically will help us, devices that will help us. If they were giving us support mechanisms specifically for women that would help us. Yes. Um, if they were teaching oncologists, doctors on how to deal with women who are pregnant, how to deal with birth trauma, how to deal with menopause, yes. how to deal with endometriosis, how to what a million things. Yep. Then at the end of that, obviously doesn't it make sense that as women that we would be healthier, that we would have more access to things and that that would actually bring down the cost of treating women. A hundred percent. Prevention. Globally. Rather than a cure. And a lot of these things, there's no such thing as a cure, but 
a preventative rather than a treatment or a pill. So we calculated, right, in the first year of post-birth of my little girl, we had lashed through all of our savings because I'd saved for maternity leave of beyond my first year. I wanted to stay at home for a bit. I think it was up to $40,000 just in specialist appointments, treatments, whatever, in 12 months. And I was lucky I had that. I was privileged I had that. A lot of women don't. And you know what? You're right. When we talk about it being criminal, that's how we got into that mesh saga when women were dying and getting really sick from mesh because people who were creating the mesh were not testing it in women. And then they just kind of said, here you go, any Joe Blow surgeon, put it in, see how it goes. They were testing it as they were going. The women were guinea pigs and it got approved. Absolutely. And that is what this documentary, The Bleeding Edge, is about. It it is so mind-blowing. But based on conversations that I had, we had an extraordinary guest who came onto our podcast called Erin Guest. She's beautiful. But Erin, unfortunately, was part of the same sort of issue. It wasn't mesh. It was a medical device which was meant to be for contraception oh, yes. and it was called e- Eshore. There are now support groups globally around the world for women who have suffered because they, they were convinced to use this product, this device by medical people. It is so frightening to hear in her own words what she went through. Yeah. What and and this is for life now. This is, you know, and that's what people don't realize. When they use us as guinea pigs to mm-hmm. test out our so-called devices, and these things were like approved in the States, FDA approved, and there was this big push for mesh, and there was a big push for eshore. And she's a really smart woman and she goes so you can only do you know the research Once. on what they're giving you because that's yes. all that's out there right I, I'm so grateful for her to come for coming on to the podcast to talk about that and she put me onto that documentary I think it just makes me so angry that as mm. women we hold up half the world basically and yet we're expected to just catch the little crumbs when it comes to medical research, medical help, medical support. And I'm talking physical medical stuff as well as mental health support for women. Yes, It's it's just insane. So I always say, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I do believe it is, that I honestly think that if men had to give birth, if men had endometriosis, if men had a uterus, the world would yes. be a very different place right now. Yeah. And you know what? I There was a point in time probably that I would hear something like that and think, oh, that's a very feminist thing to say, right? Because I didn't even understand what feminism meant. That's how naive <laughs> yeah. and when you're young and you don't realize what it actually means. I thought it meant women on picket lines, you know, preaching all of this stuff. But now I realize that what you're saying is just that women can have basic equal rights, share education to the things that men have. When you realize that that doesn't, because uh, I would think naively, doesn't it? Don't we already? Like, and then you're like, no, no, we <laughs> even close to we. Okay. And you feel frustrated and angry and you're like, okay, uh, now, and by, by no means for all of our listeners right now, we are not men bashing particular men or groups at all, at all. It is just about calling it as it is, is that my husband and my son are going to have access to everything they need, majority through Medicare here in Australia, which is free medical help. So if they've got something wrong with their prostate, it's covered. Mummy, who has pelvic organ prolapse, self-funded, go figure. And all I did was have a baby. 
Stephanie. I mean, God, this makes me so mad. But you're right. And here's the thing. I have two sons and one daughter, and I think about that all the time. Mm-hmm. My sons will have access. Uh, I still oh, have you. I. I have can, you got me? I can hear you just fine. We've lost visual, but that's okay. Let's just keep, we only need your beautiful voice okay. anyway. <laughs> oh, thank you, darling. <laughs> yeah, I think, think my sons, as you say, the same as your son and your partner and my partner mm-hmm. is the same, can access those things, but my daughter can't. And I, I'm really deeply concerned as well that in more recent times, mm-hmm. uh, while the world was watching the global pandemic unfold, our government here in Australia was actually taking many things off the approved Medicare list. And most of the things that were removed from the approved Medicare list were to do with women's health. Seriously? Seriously. Like um, what? I don't even, I, don't, I feel like I missed this. I missed that. Uh, no, there's a, whole, there's, a whole, there's a whole list of things, but I was quite surprised that some things that used to be covered. Yep are not necessarily covered and then I think some things it's like well if you're on a pension maybe it gets covered but otherwise it doesn't do you know what I mean but things like I think well I I think it was things like ultrasounds Hmm. so over a certain age as you know in this country mammograms obviously will be covered yep but beyond that if you're under a certain age I don't think that that is true anymore and I also think ultrasounds you have to go and pay for those ultrasounds in fact I'll tell you this is true because this, and this is how we found out. My 24 year old daughter had a lump in her breast. She is yes. fine. Thank goodness. Let me put that out there first. Yes. Thank you. But we are big believers in my family that you go get checked straight away. So she did go and get checked. Given her age, they didn't want her to have a mammogram. Okay. Because they are trying really hard now under the age of 25, unless they have to, because your breast tissue is still forming, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So she went and had to go and get an ultrasound done, which she paid for because this is no longer covered under Medicare. And then they couldn't, they sort of looked at the the ultrasound and the breast specialist that she went to, which by the way, she had to pay a huge amount of money out of pocket to see a breast specialist. Just to get the results, right? Just to get the results. Then he said, I'm really not happy with this scan. I want you to go to this other place and get it done. And so off we trottle and pay for yet another ultrasound to then go back to him so he can say, no, thankfully everything is fine. And he was lovely. But I just thought the enormous amount of money it costs to see a breast specialist in this country, which is not covered under Medicare, I think is quite frightening. We're talking about the possibility of breast cancer. The survival is so much better if we pick these things up quickly, but how many women now will not be going to get that lump checked if they know they have to pay for it and they can't afford it? And that to me is a criminal. It's just criminal. I, I just think we live in a, in a country that is a wealthy country, a country where there should be plenty of money for, for especially things that we know are huge killers of women. And I'm talking about breast cancer, ovarian cancer. Yes. Like we know. But yet your two sons or partner, anything in the prostate or anal mm-hmm. gland or something is happening for them. Correct. Off they go. Correct. Thank you, Medicare, swipe, and we're all good. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think, yeah, (laughs) I just, it's just, (laughs) it's thrown me because I, every time we can't, and I love that you're talking about it because either naively or ignorantly, if you're not in that space, which I'm definitely not in that breast cancer space, you don't know. You only know what you know. So I know what happens in the prolapse space and I know what happens in the child birth trauma space, but when I hear things like that, I was like, again, 
another thing, just another thing. Right. That's why it's so important for all of us as women Mm. to continue to talk and be loud and proud in this space. And as you say, this is not about radical feminism. This is about basic human rights Mm. and and having equal rights to everyone in this country should have equal rights. And we know there are major debates raging about not just women, but also too in the Indigenous space and a whole lot of things where, you know, it, it seems that some people are more equal than others. We really need to speak up because the more we talk about this the more educated we all are the more we understand that our sisters are suffering in different areas we don't necessarily know about the better it is and as you say thank goodness that you had that money to fall back on but a lot of women do not they They just don't don't. well when it ran out because it did run out we were really stuck and uh you had to do things that you probably wouldn't have chosen to do so Obviously, before having a baby and being a triathlete, I had a lot of expensive equipment with double income, no kids. I started selling it off. I started selling really expensive race bikes and whatnots just to be able to continue to pay for the rehabilitation that I needed after just having a baby. Yeah. Wow. So we did what it takes and we still do even now, even having to purchase big ticket items for the house to continue rehabilitation. I had to sell all my baby things like the the cot and the pram pretty early on. Well, we didn't, I I mean, I couldn't really use it anyway because I couldn't bend over to put the baby in the cot. But so we did. That's just what you have to be resourceful as well as know your place in privilege, but it wasn't always easy, I will say. Ah, Stephanie. Yeah, look, and I think there's a lot of mothers out there who will be hearing that and nodding along with you, basically saying, yes, yeah. we've I, I don't know many mums that haven't made some sacrifices, and especially mm. women who've gone through birth trauma or who, you know, and, and look, I'll be honest, I love, love, love so much what you were doing because I didn't really understand the prolapse space okay. prior to hearing your story and hearing your yeah. podcast and I know it happens. I've got friends who have had prolapses. Mm -hmm. But again, why weren't we talking about this earlier? Why? And and because women felt like they couldn't. They still do. Or they were embarrassed (laughs) or there is some sort of shame around this. When I said we've got to knock down the door, I think we need to start kicking the damn door down. I think the more we know about this stuff, though, the more we empathise and can support the sisterhood, because we are all as women going through the motherhood journey, very interconnected, whether we like it or not. And I think that it's a beautiful place to be when you find out, oh, someone's been through what I've been through. I thought I was the only one. Yeah. You can see yourself and you go, oh yeah. Now I look, I know a little bit about your journey because I know exactly what you just said, being in that birth trauma space, I'm not alone. And you yourself had a traumatic experience. Are you okay if we go there? Absolutely. Yeah. And mine was very, very different from yours. Um, And and that's what I mean. That's why I love this, that you're talking about this and creating this really safe space for women. So with me, as I said, I was a young mum. I was 21 pregnant. When my water broke, I was, this is so exciting. I went and put a full face of makeup on because just I love <laughs> having you. this baby was going to be just beautiful. so easy. It's beautiful. <laughs> well, let's just face it right. Even now, even now, my surgeon, my prolapse surgeon would say to me, you were way too old at 35. You should have had a baby at 21. That's when your body is at its optimum prime for birthing. So there is no reason why you wouldn't think that. 
and put makeup on and think that it's going to be easy because that's what we're told still now. Absolutely. And there is this, I, I don't know whether people don't tell you stuff because they're terrified of scaring you. And I think part of my reluctance previously to tell this story, and I have told this story publicly before, but for a long time, I didn't really talk a lot about it. And I think it was because I was so worried about terrifying other women who were going through that pregnancy journey. But in actual fact, I think in not telling the story, I did a disservice to some women as well who didn't realize other people had been through this. So in my case, you know, full face of makeup, got my bag on the way to the hospital. I'm sure when I walked in the midwives, because I thought natural birth had plan I had a plan right I had a plan yeah um, you do. <laughs> had a birthing plan uh, uh, two of the midwives I saw one of the midwives look at one of the nurses and I'm sure they rolled their eyes they would have thought <laughs> oh we've got a live one here with their full face of makeup <laughs> it was a 12-hour labor which it, for some people that's not a long labor some people go through days of it yeah it seems common for the first right it yeah. does 12-hour labor. It was very intense very quickly. So I okay. sort of hit the hospital. My contractions were like one minute apart really quickly. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So basically it's six hours into trying to deliver this baby, his head crowned and then nothing happened. He was stuck. He was right there. Oh. Um, and that happened for a long time. At this stage, vitals aren't good. The baby, a whole lot of stuff is happening. So from the six, first six hours to the second lot of six hours was a bit of a nightmare. We'll just put it that way. So sure. I, yeah, I understand. Yeah. So they were trying to monitor this baby, but there was a lot of infighting starts happening between the midwives and my obstetrician, who they had called in and said, this is pretty urgent, stuff is going down here, you need to be here. Okay. My obstetrician was a woman. Yes. Uh, so I think this shocked me more than anything else. Okay. Who came in, was looking at all the vitals, was looking at me. I was in a lot of pain. I had extreme back pain. <laughs> I was having a back labor. At some point, she said to me, oh, stop it. You're not the first woman to ever have a baby, you know. I felt foolish, but was in pain and didn't really know what to do. My mother was in there with me. My partner was in there. My mum, who had had five children, starts to realise early on something is really wrong here, like something's really wrong. Yeah. She's saying to the to the midwives, something you have to do something. The midwives are like, we're trying to do everything that we they know. They know something's wrong. Okay. So the midwives have a screaming match with the obstetrician over the top of me at one stage because they're saying, you need you need to get that baby out. You need to seize her, get that baby out. The baby's not coming. We can't get the baby out. She, in her wisdom, decided at one point. Oh, before I get to that, so the, one of the midwives went over her head and called in a pediatrician because she thought, oh. I, I don't like what's happening here for this baby. Okay. She was advocating for you, right? She advocated for me. I, to this day, know that the two midwives in the room and then a third who came later saved my life. I know that. Oh, bless them. In my heart of hearts, they saved my life. So they advocated for me. They called in this pediatrician who was a lovely man, but he wasn't expecting to come down and he wasn't expecting to walk into theatre or whatever. He's coming to the room. He's just saying chaos, I think. Yeah. He has looked at all the vitals. He's having words with her, but I can't really hear what is being said. She's getting quite grumpy. The, the obstetrician. obstetrician, yeah. Yes, okay. obstetrician's getting quite grumpy. The pediatrician came over to me and I, I, I do remember like he, he put his hands 
on my arm and he said to me, we're going to take care of you. We're going to take care of this baby. So that happened. She, the obstetrician was calling for people to basically get out. And he said, I'm not leaving. Wow. This is serious. Oh, it was serious. So the pediatrician stayed and I'm so grateful to him as well, honestly. So this is all sort of going on. The obstetrician, I don't know why, decided that since we couldn't, they couldn't get the baby out naturally that she pushed him back up tried to push him back up which caused at this stage this is 12 hours in it actually caused me to go into what they now call obstetric shock so my heart stopped I flatlined they were losing the baby's vitals were obviously plummeting and so there was no choice at that time with no anesthetic because I my heart had stopped they had to basically do a Caesar. I was cut from hip to hip because it was just get him out. Uh, they pulled the baby out and really their focus was on that, but they had to get him out so that they could actually use the paddles and bring me back. One of the most amazing things that happened at that time was the pediatrician had called in an anaesthetist because he said, this baby's going to be Caesared. We know it. So this anaesthetist was standing ready, basically on standby. And he was standing, imagine I'm laying down, he's standing behind my head. Yep. He was a South American man. He kept talking to me very gently and softly while all of this chaos was going on. And apparently I looked at him and said, just let my baby be born. I just want to see him. I just want to see him. And then I flatlined. Now he, in his wisdom, straight away jumped over and he was actually doing CPR. He was like basically pumping my chest. So all of this was going on while they're cutting me open, pulling the baby out, all the stuff. I I will say that obviously they brought me back. I'm here. (laughs) So thank goodness. It was hugely traumatic. It was hugely traumatic on the lead up. I didn't realize how bad things were, obviously, for a little bit of time after that. The most important thing, obviously, was that he was alive and he was okay. And I'm hugely grateful for that. Just the fact that he's still in the world, you know, I'm hugely grateful. And as I said, I thank those midwives and that pediatrician and that beautiful anaesthetist who was keeping my heart pumping after that. So it's such a huge thing to go through. And I didn't know that it was something that could ever happen to anyone. And beyond my story and telling my story that I have met other women or spoken to other women where that has happened. And I, I don't know why it isn't talked about much like any other birth trauma. It's not discussed. Mm. And as I said, my reluctance in sharing my story for a long time was really about not wanting to scare the hell out of women who were going through their pregnancy journey. Obviously I had two more children. There was no obstetrician or surgeon or anyone that I found who was willing to let me go through a trial labor because they said this could happen again and we might not be so lucky. And I think they were great. I mean, I was counseled a lot. I saw a lot of people when I was pregnant with my daughter. And in the end, they said, our job is to ensure where we can, the safest delivery for your child and doing it naturally for you isn't going to work. So yeah. yeah, but a lot of trauma was caused during that because when I was cut, I was bleeding from my bladder. One of my fallopian tubes was damaged. I had a lot of internal scarring and a lot of internal damage, which meant that when I carried my second child, when I was carrying my daughter, I hemorrhaged at 28 weeks. Oh, you internally yourself? Yeah. So I just hemorrhaged. And so there was all this stuff going on and they thought we're going to have to deliver this baby. They didn't deliver her, thank goodness. They were pumping me full of steroids. The bleeding stopped. Okay. And 
I managed to carry her. She, she was three weeks early, but she was safe and sound and yeah, seasoned, right? <laughs> and then with my youngest, I carried him. I was actually four weeks early. I had just finished work that day to go on maternity leave and I went to pick up my other son from school and my water broke in the schoolyard so they <laughs> was a Caesar obviously I stayed awake for the the second two because I could you know like when it's a planned Caesar they can do that so I stayed awake but they said your organs are even in the wrong place like we they just had so much cleanup to do when I delivered him that they said you cannot physically carry any more children we're amazed you carried this one we don't know how we made it this far in I think yeah. And that's the legacy as well of a birth trauma is that there's still stuff internally that you can't fix. I can't feel my stomach to this day. I can't From the feel that. Mm, yeah, because and because it was so big. Like now, I mean, thankfully, most Caesar scars are small and they're very mindful of because there is tissue damage that happens. Yes. Mine being, so I'm not talking about their being mindful in terms of it looking pretty, but you know, there's a reason yeah. they try and keep it small because there is tissue damage that happens when you slice someone yes. open. So yeah. So being from hip to hip, there are still problems. Sometimes um I've had it's really strange, but I've like, I know that I've got pain somewhere, but I don't know where the pain is. I, I don't know. I can't actually figure it out. If, does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. And you can say yes, conf- confidently, because I had a tumor removed from my abdomen after my second birth and I can touch it now. And sometimes it's itchy, but I scratch where I think it's itchy, but it's not satisfied. <laughs> it's like there's <laughs> little phantom pains everywhere, but I just want to just pause for a second because it's not often I'm speechless because I'm a chatterbox but listening to your story for those who can't see I just had my hand over my mouth just like I know people have traumatic births I've listened to a lot of stories but Sandy that is epic really epic well I'm grateful that you asked me to come and talk about it I yeah, look, I, I still think as much as I say I'm over it and I'm fine, I think that it, there's part of you where it never leaves. I mean, the fear when I was pregnant with my daughter was so palpable yeah. because I kept thinking, am I going, is this going to happen again? The fear when I was pregnant with my third child, oh, is this going to happen again? And the amount, like I, I'm I'm actually in awe, to be honest, of the female body and how much it can endure. Yeah, how absolutely. Much it's, it, I actually am quite surprised myself that I ever went through it again they did tell me after the birth of my first son it is unlikely you will ever have another child because it was a lot of internal damage mm-hmm. uh, my daughter is eight years younger than him so there was an eight-year gap yeah. and as I said and in falling pregnant with her the fear was so real from the word go the fear of am I going to miscarry the fear of am I going to lose this child but also then when I got past a certain point oh wow I now have to I have to deliver this child and the fear was so real what if my heart stopped suddenly anytime during this pregnancy there was so many what ifs can I ask when you were describing what the obstetrician had done and pushed the baby back through Mm. that was part of the conversations in our journey as well a little bit like if she was stuck how come they just didn't do a Caesar at that point? And I remember someone saying, because pushing a baby back up through a canal can cause so much more damage to you and the baby. And the fact that that happened to you, I'm thinking, this is, I'm just curious to know, was that obstetrician ever held? Well, is it 
is it not safe practice? Like is what she did wrong? Like we know what she did caused you to flatline, but in medical terms, would that be classed as something that you just don't do? Do you know? I, well, I think now it is certainly not common practice. I've never okay. heard. I mean, even when I, there's a collective gasp whenever I tell this story to any woman. You, physically, you can see women recoil when I say it, I right? Did. Because, <laughs> yeah, because any woman who has been in labor and trying to birth a baby, we know what it feels like as that baby is coming down, as its head crowns, et cetera. So to, it's very difficult to imagine what it feels like then to, for someone to try and reverse that physically. It is really dangerous. It can cause massive issues for the baby, as you say, and also the mum. So for me, even though in the end I was seasoned and my baby was delivered safely, they had tried to get him out with forceps. He had huge marks on his head everywhere while they were trying to get this ba- leverage this baby out. Where he had, and I'm trying to, so just so for people to know, it was a little bit like a Harry Potter scar. So if you imagine in the, from between his eyes up, so that's where oh, forceps yep. marks were. So we're just yep. trying to pull him out that way. He was black and blue. It was all the things, the poor, poor Baba. Do they know why he got stuck? Like, was there an explanation to you as to, was he posterior? Was he, was he big? Like what made him become stuck for you? They actually feel like he just happened to be a big baby in terms of head circumference and that that nothing was working. So at that point, though, I'm pretty sure because obviously your heart doesn't just stop. My body must have been going through enormous stress and pressure at that time for my heart rate, my blood pressure, all of those things. To, to go up so severely that my heart would stop. So at that point, though, they should have really been recognising her body can't do it or it won't yeah. do it or something. It's not going to happen, right? Yeah. And we, we need to get this baby out safely. So, yes, but unfortunately her in the trying to push the baby back up, I mean, I'm just grateful he is okay because it's such a dangerous practice for, for a baby. It's very yeah. rare that they would do it. But having said that too, I was in labor for 12 hours with a head that was crowned for six. So I still had uh, a an episiotomy. I yep. still had stitches okay. on my stomach, oh, wow. right? And I'm just like, wow, this is, this is a lot. And at 21, I think I was so shocked by the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. And I, I, I'm sure at some point, I mean, I, I actually know at some point, my mother was saying to me, you should sue her. I can't believe that she's practicing and this should never happen to any anyone else ever again. Okay, But I didn't because I was young. I was traumatized by it. I didn't want to think about it. I, I wanted to, you know what I mean? Like it was mm. just such a big thing to go through. Mm. And at 22, I could not imagine taking on an obstetrician in a court of law and trying to prove, especially because I was so uneducated about all of these things as well. We are. We're just, we're, right? we're kind of, we we kind of scratch the surface in antenatal classes. And it's almost like, I you know what, I just wrote an article about this today, like this morning for a parenting magazine that says, why are women treated like we are stupid? Like we mm-hmm. can't handle the facts that happen in childbirth. So we pretend like it doesn't happen and it's all roses so that we go in with a positive mindset I think that is just garbage it it's really just making out as if we're too dumb to realize that it happens and that you could probably work through the fears of some of that because your story as you said you have spoken to many women who it's very similar 
I'm exactly the same. I am not alone. I'm not the only one who feels like they failed vaginal childbirth, wished I had a cesarean section, wished it didn't get as far as it did. So in my mind, I'm thinking, as you said, you didn't have the capacity to take on. And in actual fact, you weren't just taking on any, an obstetrician. You were taking on an institutional's legal team. Correct. Their insurance legal team, which is even bigger than Correct. the state. You know what I mean? <laughs> they are tyrants for, these, for, for making these things go away. And so I know that from experience because as your mum said, you should sue them. My mum said the same thing to me. I just wanted what happened to me to not happen to anyone else and for them to stop telling me that it's normal and that my birth was normal and that they were sorry, that they were sorry for waiting so long and that it won't happen to anyone else. That's all I wanted. A little bit of money to, to replenish everything we had spent and beyond because I didn't know this was going to be a lifelong thing at that time would have been a bonus. That's not what I was going in for and I can guess that's not what you would have ever got in for either. I don't think any woman with birth trauma is going in for a quick cash grab. But the community perception is, oh, I've seen articles where women have successfully sued the hospital where I birthed and they were shamed. Oh, look yeah. at her. She's just going after money. It's just childbirth. It's what you, sh you, know, you should expect. Like, what do you expect? It's childbirth. I'm like, what do we expect, Sandy? We expect to birth a baby and be able to walk out the door. I probably am guessing you couldn't walk out the door. You had to be wheeled out in a wheelchair. You got it right. <laughs> and I was and I was in the hospital for quite a while. It's a scary thing. And but also too, you're exactly right. You I would be up against, can you imagine a 22-year-old girl mm -hmm. coming up against a massive institution? When you think about it, I, you know, I was not that long out of high school. So you kind of go, well, I don't know even where to start. And I didn't have a lot of money. We were not wealthy. I, you know, and I just had a baby. So I think in the end, I really wanted to just concentrate on the baby. But if I'd had my time, well, here's the thing. If I knew then what I now know, <laughs> I absolutely would have gone after them. And I would have done it for exactly that reason to stop this happening to any other woman. Yes. Because here's the thing. She continued to practice. And I remember I was meant to take my baby in for the six-week checkup. I could not go near, I did not want to be anywhere near her. Then I should have realised at that point that I was probably going through PTSD, that I was traumatised, but I didn't realise that. And that's the other thing we don't talk enough about. Where is, and look, my son is now 30 mm -hmm. and 30 years ago, I can tell you, as much as the midwives and the doctors, everyone everyone was amazing while I was in the hospital because they knew what had happened. Yes. There was really no support for me once I left other than the maternal health center nurse who weighs your baby, measures your baby, yeah. checks your baby. What about the baby? But what about the mum? What about yeah. the mother who's been traumatized? And that really, I'm hoping beyond hope that that has changed in the last 30 years, but I don't know that it has. Not for me, not in my experience. Right. I was wheeled out in a wheelchair because of blood loss the very next day. My daughter was checked because she had big bruising on her head. They were afraid it was boggy and it was a hematoma. It was not great. So they gave her Panadol because they said she's probably in a lot of pain. And I got oh. nothing. I just said, see you later. Enjoy your baby. Have fun. Oh, wow. And that's it. And then everything after that, I had to self-advocate and, and demand to be seen again when things all started going haywire. But yes, I don't, I don't believe that it's changed 
maybe in the last six years, I would be very hopeful that it had, but from conversations I'm still having with women who are messaging me on DMs and saying, oh, thank you for your book because I've read it and now I feel like I'm not like I'm not an idiot that it happened to me, but my midwives in hospital are reassuring me that this is all part of childbirth. This is just what happens. Some women have a little bit of a, what do they call it? Like a little bit of a tear. And oh, like, a little bit of a tear. <laughs> <laughs> and but when they say that in antenatal classes or after birth, a little bit of a tear, literally you think of a piece of paper and, and tearing like that much they don't tell you that not only does it go from your vulva to your opening of your anus but also multiple layers inside like cutting pelvic floor muscles and cutting nerves to your sexual pleasure it's gone once like you said like on your tummy it's numb episiotomies do the exact same thing but no one talks about that so can you see why I'm saying they're treating us like we are stupid, like we can't handle it. But yet by saying nothing, they make us handle it in silence. Oh, it's just so bizarre. I'm so bloody sorry that you had to go through that only six years ago. I am like it breaks my heart, Stephanie, mm-hmm. because I just think how we really haven't come that far. I was wheeled out of that hospital even though I, knew I had a Caesar. So I did need to have care afterwards but I couldn't go back I couldn't bring myself to go back to that obstetrician so I I was going to see my female GP who was amazing and she understood why but I was like I can't I just can't and she said okay I'll make you a deal I'll take care of you but you have the baby has to still see uh, you go to the health center I was like fine but I can't see her. So my GP was actually doing the follow-up for the Caesar scar, for oh, yeah. the episiotomy, for all of the, the fun stuff that, that that I went through. And she was writing a report and sending it over to this obstetrician. And an obstetrician, by the way, that I paid a lot of money to see. Mm. This It doesn't come cheap if you want to choose your own. Correct. Right. And I think now looking back, because of what I'd been through, they actually insisted for the other two that I go to the Royal Women's Hospital here in Melbourne. Now that was free. It was totally free care. I had chosen to go private all the way with the first baby, private obstetrician, private hospital, all of it. And everything went to hell in a hay basket. Yeah. And I'm sure they were, they knew what was I'd been through when I had the second two, because it's in the medical records. Oh yeah. Okay. But I, right. But I will say that every nurse the surgeon, everybody that I came into contact with was incredible. And so that's the other thing we don't talk about enough of as well, is that I I hate that women are made to feel that they might get substandard care in a public hospital when they Mm -hmm. have a baby. That is not always the case. It is Mm -hmm. not always the case. I don't want women to feel shamed when they have a Caesar because for Mm -hmm. for some women, it is not possible to have a natural birth. It's not going to happen. And the safety of those women and the safety of those babies should be the most important factor. But I have seen so many women shame other women because they've had a natural birth and that woman didn't. It's great. Same as breastfeeding. I find this whole thing. (laughs) Why are we pitted against each other? It's ridiculous. Even the public versus private. And so this is what I always say birth trauma or a traumatic experience doesn't discriminate so whilst it happened to me in the public system with a midwifery care practice naturally I ran 
to the opposite direction, private hospital, private obstetrician the second time, and you were the opposite. So obstetric care, private hospital, trauma happened, and then naturally you gravitated towards the opposite of that, which was in a public hospital and received amazing care. Yeah. What I think about that picture is that we feels like we're missing something even bigger here. And that is the fact that when people go through this in their first birth or they go through it the first time with a child, the next time I have not seen yet, I'm not saying it's not out there, that women experience that again. So we learn so much from that first experience that it never happens again. Well, you know, I don't within get, reason, yeah. I don't want to get caught up in never. I shouldn't say never, but from the women who I've spoken to who have had birth trauma, their second childbirth is really healing because it's very different. They're very educated. They know both sides of a birthing textbook now, whereas before you were only ever taught one side. And I can assume with your obstetrician, she maybe made you feel like she had it. She was confident because you've paid all this money for this top private care. Maybe she didn't talk to you a lot about the antenatal stuff. <laughs> Silly questions, Andy. How do we do that? right? Mm -hmm. And I know this is going to sound really obscure and people will probably boo-boo it. However, my husband and I have had in-depth conversations about this lots of times. How do we make sure this doesn't happen for our girl, Elsie? Because that is my life mission. My girl and all of our girls, your daughter, everyone. But she's my driver. I can't guarantee that if she makes the choices she does, that the same thing won't happen in this current state of care but what if we could do something that gives women the, the physical feeling the mental and the visual on how to birth a baby vaginally or cesarean section before they're there you're probably thinking what the hell are you talking about Steph <laughs> I think it's actually an extraordinarily brilliant idea I'm talking and about virtual reality I, I, I realized, and I'm yeah. thinking it's actually a really great <laughs> idea. I think there's a number of things that would happen if you could, if virtually, with virtual reality, if we could put help women to understand the birth journey, one of two things would happen. I guarantee if teenagers were educated in this, there would be a lot more young women, if they learned this stuff as teenagers and they went through virtual reality, if they felt it, they understood it completely. And I don't mean to scare young girls. That's not my intention here either. But if they could do this like older teenagers, I really think it would give them the power to make better choices or make more appropriate choices for themselves heading into that birth space because we don't know anything. And then all that happens is we talk to other women who are pregnant or other women who have had babies and yeah. everyone tells you the best parts of those stories. Can you imagine if a young girl comes and says, oh, what was your birth like, Sandy? And she's heavily pregnant. I don't automatically whip out the, hey, my heart stops story no. because it would be terrifying. But this is why we need these stories to be told and women to be educated way, way, way ahead of time. Yes. Yes. So that we can make appropriate, what's appropriate for us? What are the choices? The really fascinating thing as well is my, my mother was disabled. She was a disabled woman. She lived her entire life with polio. Okay. Um, so she lived in a lot of pain. She birthed five children naturally. So there was no reason for me to think, well, I am yeah. my mother's daughter and I'm not disabled. So why wouldn't I? Of course. 
I felt like, and you raised this a little bit before, but I felt like such a failure in so many ways that how could this happen to me? What was wrong with me? Why couldn't I just be one of those women who popped out that baby with my makeup still intact and walked out the hospital the next day, right? Why aren't I one of those? Um, Just your body intact. That'll do. That'd do. That would have been wonderful. (laughs) But I think it is that, that my mum talked a lot about, you know, I asked her lots of questions about her births and her births were not easy. Some of her, she was in labor for like 48 hours or whatever, or a long time because her poor little body, I'm sure was first of all, living with extreme pain, chronic pain, and then going through childbirth on top of it. I think, and I think she once joked and said, when you live with that kind of chronic pain, maybe going through the trauma of labor doesn't feel as bad. And maybe that was true for her. It would make sense. (laughs) But for everyone else, I hope there will be a way moving forward. And I see people like your good self, because you're such an extraordinary advocate in this space, (laughs) to education is key. The more women know, the more armed we are with knowledge, then the better we can be make informed choices. Not just, well, here you go. Everybody goes through the same antenatal class, come out on the other side and try and figure out what your birth plan is going to be, right? I think it's really important for people to know, just like everything else in life, when you walk into a hospital, there are risks and there are. Now, I'm not saying that those risks, it will be such a tiny percentage of women who go through something like I went through. That would be a truism. But it's a a much higher... I was going to say it's a much higher percentage of women who've gone through what you have gone through. But I'm going to jump in, Sandy, because this is the issue. When people talk to us in percentages, mm-hmm. so Eva, I know you very kindly just said only a small percentage of women, but you matter. You, Sandy, it doesn't matter if it's 1%, 2%, 3%. When you start throwing numbers at people, the human element is removed from the journey and your story like it shouldn't matter if it's one or 99% because you matter. I don't want women and childbirth to be based on numbers and facts and stats from someone sitting in a chair in Parliament House. It's bullshit. We need to start thinking as women as every single individual woman counts. We all count. We're all important. Don't discount yourself. <laughs> oh, I love you so much, Stephanie, because you're right. <laughs> You're right. And and me saying that and pulling out the percentage saying it'd be a small percentage of people, I was still going to say a larger percentage of people go through what you go through. More other women go through different kinds of birth trauma. So if you add us all up, yeah, right? This is a large number of women. This is a large number of human beings who have gone through trauma and who were not prepared for said trauma ahead of time. And so I do understand that in any medical procedure, that includes giving birth to a child, mm-hmm. that unexpected stuff can happen that no one's ever seen before. Sure, I, I get all of that. And that medical staff are on the fly trying to figure out, oh my God, what's happening? What are we going to do here? But I think there is enough evidence and enough lived experience for them to know that certain things are quite common sadly Hmm. when women give birth and why aren't those women being supported why aren't they educated ahead of time why aren't we educated ahead of time I Um, think I know the answer I think of I know. course, because as we know, only 1%, well, let's get back to percentages yeah. of money gets spent on women's health. <laughs> and then another element to that answer is that, which I'm probably sure you've thought about, is that for me, I never had an opportunity to report back to the hospital what exactly happened 
after the birth because they sent me off saying everything was normal. So statistically wise, they are none the wiser that birth trauma happened to me or to the other, I think, 10 women around the same month that I gave birth in a very overcrowded hospital, understaffed hospital. None of those went back to report unless there's legal action that causes a result to change something they only know what they know so how can they fix a system that they don't think is broken because we're not counted in stats no one has ever asked me and this is another issue we don't do birthing debriefs here in Australia another thing we should change but if I'm not counted as something where something went wrong they still think that it only happens to a very small percentage of women and then you still have natural birth advocates that hold on to those small stats because Mm -hmm. they really want to push the agenda of birthing naturally so much so that because we're not counted well then it doesn't matter because majority of women can birth vaginally and not an issue just a small tear that's all oh god and you know it's so complicated right it's a really complex multi-layered multi-faceted issue that me as one little mama cannot fix for my girl Elsie but that's why I, as crazy as it sounds thinking outside the box pun intended is that virtual reality I'm thinking well has anyone looked at this and I'm not saying I'm gonna make my girl do virtual reality childbirth and scare her or that anyone has to do it but for people like me who had curious minds I wanted to know everything about childbirth but every time I asked was very dismissed and shushed oh don't worry about a cesarean that won't be you you know the famous lisa wilkinson says that on the project that when she had birthing classes there were six in the room and the midwife said one of you will have a caesar and she looked around and thought well it's going to be one of you she never thought it was going to be her because we're taught to not think it's going to happen to us and so i think if we don't start looking at things like virtual reality then how is it ever going to change? I think that's true. But I do think one of the most powerful tools we as women and mothers have is our ability to talk and be honest with our daughters. Now, I know, unfortunately, that won't happen for every girl, but I feel like with my daughter, I'm very open and honest about things, even my sons, because my sons physically cannot give birth to a child, but they will have partners who may. Um, So I think in talking about this stuff openly and honestly and not feeling shamed and not feeling embarrassed to do so. Now, part of that really is a healing journey for people to get through before they can start telling their story. For some of us, telling our story helps with the healing. But I've my kids know my story and I tell them not to scare them. And I always say it exactly the way I said it to you before, with any medical intervention with any medical thing going on and that includes giving birth to children Hmm. things can go wrong and just be aware of what can go wrong educate yourself as much as possible I will answer any of your questions that I have go and talk to other people where things are gone ask your obstetrician here's a good one because we don't no one tells us this ask your obstetrician well what are the risks because if I was going into hospital to have a knee surgery Right. I would ask, what are the risks? Not only do they tell you, Sandy, but they make you read the list and sign it to say that it has been explained to you and that you understand and comprehend it. There's an issue there with natural childbirth is that we don't think we need to talk to women about that because it's just natural. We don't need to talk to women that you could have an episiotomy or stitches or forceps. 
because it's natural. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. It really doesn't make sense. And so that's the thing that I would really, really encourage everyone, whoever is listening to this podcast, whether you're a woman thinking about having a baby, even if you've had a baby, but you're going to have another baby. Yep. If it's, a, if it's men listening to this podcast because your partner's having a baby or something's happening, ask, ask the questions and don't give up and just say, no, well, listen, I hope that women listen to your podcast, go into their obstetricians and say, well, I listen to this podcast. I know there are risks involved, but I want you to tell me what all the risks are. Of course, obstetricians will say, oh, it's so unusual that that would happen. But the reality is it isn't unusual for all. When you combine all of the women, so many women go through stuff they don't tell us about. I think that is our best way to our daughters. Yeah. moving forward is to talk, be honest and open. Don't sweep it under the rug. Honestly, my, for example, my son's getting married in November. That's very exciting. They're excited that they're thinking about their future and having children. You know, his fiance knows my story from all three of my pregnancies. And I think that is important because I would never want to scare anybody. And that is not my intention because she could have a baby go in and give birth to a baby in five seconds. Who knows? Who knows? Here's the thing. Lived experience will tell me that it doesn't always go to plan. And so just be prepared for plan B, plan C. C. What are those plans, right? Don't be, and start breaking down those barriers for our daughters around Caesars, around getting a Caesar, because ultimately you want, we want our daughters to be safe. We want their babies to be as safe as is possible, other things can still go wrong, even with a Caesar, obviously. But that, and for those women that can give birth naturally, that is a wonderful thing. But they need to be supported because, as you know, and your lived experience will show, that in going through a natural birth, stuff can still happen. Birth yeah. trauma can still occur. And, and we just need to know that that is a possibility. Absolutely. I mean, trauma doesn't mean you have to have had a difficult birth either. You could have a textbook classified birth, but it still feels traumatic to you. That adjustment to motherhood or that transition from being a single woman into becoming a mum in that delivery room, trauma looks like very many different things to many different women. So there's no, my trauma is worse than yours or whatever. There's no competition. If it's traumatic to you, then it's traumatic to you. What we want to try and do is in eliminate, aim to reduce what trauma feels like for people, meaning that their birth, they go in understanding more and then whatever happens, well, like you said, you can't predict everything. But if you know, oh, okay, the baby's stuck. I know, I remember this. And they said, when it's stuck, I may have to have a cesarean. Or you know what, Sandy, my friend gave birth two weeks ago. Her husband said to me in the playground school pickup, Stephanie, I don't understand if, because he's quite methodical in his job. He said, they did, they had a test early on that showed that the baby was probably a bit stuck. He said, but then they made her go on for another 12 hours before they decided Mm. she was going to have a cesarean. He said, if they've got the tools to show that that's probably not going to happen, why did they make her keep going? And I was like, agreed. I wish I could answer that for you, honey. And I'm really sorry, but at the same time, I'm really thankful that someone stepped in and said, okay, enough. 
Enough. We've tried everything. It's now time. It is enough, and it's time to have a cesarean. And she kind of even told me, like, oh, "I had to have a Caesar," like a bit of a whisper, like she was embarrassed. And I said, "That's amazing." And I know you said you want our girls to not be shamed for having a Caesar, but that's really hard. It's hard when they're constantly on social media, hearing stories or thrown stats that the World Health Organization, the people mm-hmm. who we trust are wanting to reduce cesarean rates. They keep saying it. We've got to reduce cesarean rates. It's too high. Australia, too high. America, too high. But what they fail to do, Sandy, is to continue the conversation and say, why? I, I'm always like, why do you need to reduce the rates? Is it, is it expensive for you? Because it costs more to have a cesarean birth than a vaginal birth. Is it something to do with the babies is something to do with the mums like why are you not answering that part of the question but you just keep saying reduce 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 everyone keeps banging on the reduce drum and I'm like I don't understand and 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 of course the other missing piece in that conversation Stephanie is why are so many women needing to have Caesar so let's have a look at and I'm not and, that, and I'm talking about genuinely needing it. Obviously, we know that women's health is not particularly on the radar, basically, at all. sadly. <laughs> but what they're failing to realise too is that women have, like there's evolution going on here with humans as well. Women have evolutionarily changed over many, many years. Now, I'm no expert, but I would say this is 100% true. Okay. But also what else has changed is medical technology. My that that pediatrician who was in there with me when I gave birth to my son when they seized me he said to me much later because he was coming around to check the baby the entire time I was in the hospital and he did I did go and see him after I left the hospital so there you go yeah he he said to me look 50 years ago you would have just died in childbirth done that would have been it and but we have medical technology we have the ability as you just said with your friend who had and I'm so sorry she went through this that, that they knew that the baby was stuck. They knew. So I don't understand why they would f- further traumatise someone. Surely you would say, well, we think the baby's stuck. Your health and the health of that baby are our primary concern. Let's just get this thing done. Yeah. Where it's less traumatic. Yeah. But we do need to break down those barriers. And the way that we do that, what who is saying or whatever, is to say it loud and proud. I've been in room for women and oh, you know, I didn't see that. Yeah. And I say, oh, I've had three seasons. Like I'm so wow. loud about it because I'm like, well, you know, so well. I know so many women who have had to have seizures. I also know women who've had natural births. I know women who have had a combination of both. Their first mm-hmm. child was a Caesar. Their second baby was natural or vice versa. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we need to stop putting this kind of pressure and shame on women. We need to provide support. adequate education and yes. massive support before and after babies are born it's a you know it's a flawed system we know that it's flawed I know that the midwives who were in with me as I said and I'm more than happy to say this I shout it to the rooftops they saved my life I forever yeah. in debt to those women bless them um, bless them bless right them now. but but even one of them was saying to me, darling, this baby's not going to come out. I think we're, you're going to end, we're, they're going to seize you. And I, at that point, all I cared about was my baby. All I, At this stage, they're monitoring him. They've got things stuck to his head and I'm watching the rates go. At the end of the day, because they were so calm in that crisis, 
Yes. And so supportive. And they were saying to me, you're probably going to have to be seethed. They weren't saying it to me like I was a failure. They weren't saying it to me like it was shameful. They were saying it to me as medical people should, that this is also normal. Yeah. You know what, like what was going on with me was not normal. It shouldn't have happened. Yeah. It should not have happened. But a seether as opposed to a vaginal birth, they're both normal. <laughs> They're both birth. They're both getting they're both, to meet your baby. I right? even say it about adoption for even mothers. It's nothing Absolutely. unnatural. It's just different pathways to your journey to Correct. motherhood. All of them are Correct. natural. All of them are love. Sandy, is there any parting advice you would like to give to our listeners today? It could be anything to do with childbirth or beyond. What have you got for us? Yes. What I will say is, regardless of what your birth plan is or what your thinking might happen for yourself I, I please 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 there's a couple of things if you're not 100% comfortable with an obstetrician find a new one if you are asking questions and you are being roadblocked and they're not giving you answers find a new doctor if you that's a big thing for me and even as a woman who is now 52 going through menopause so I'm at the other end of this journey now I'm perimenopausal yeah. I, I often say this women are so often dismissed in the medical realm by GPs, male and female, by obstetricians, yep. and even to some degree, pediatricians, when you take your baby and you're worried about something, we're, we're very much dismissed. So my big advice, and, and I say this so often, find yourself someone new and keep banging on doors until you find someone that feels like a good fit, yes. that feels like you feel safe. Having a doctor that you feel safe with does not in any way mean that stuff can't happen. We understand that. But it, what it will do is that person is more likely to answer your questions, give you answers to things, even if you don't want to hear that, that response. Yep. Those things are important. And I think then they become a partner in your journey rather than there's some demigod standing on a, <laughs> on a platform who's powerful, the mighty Oz, who's going to deliver this baby. Those things are important. Get to really know your midwives. If you are going in there to have a natural birth and you know you'll be using midwives, really get to know them. Ask questions. Ask, ask them what the risks are. Yeah. And, and, and that is okay to do so. I think years ago we were taught that doctors know everything and it was disrespectful to question the status quo, but it's not disrespectful. You have to advocate for your own health. Yeah, you wanted to just be a good patient. And now you can still be a polite patient, but one that becomes informed, definitely. Correct. So that would be my parting advice. Please it. advocate for yourselves because you're worth it. And it's hard to even say to women, advocate for yourselves because no one else is going to do it because that even feels a bit rubbish. But that's where we're at. That, ladies, that is where we are at. No one is going to come in and save you. No one is going to come in and rescue you. No one is going to come and answer the thoughts in your head if you don't verbalize them. So, Sandy, that is amazing advice. And thanks for chatting. I, It's huge, isn't it? It's a big thing. And I think you're very brave for being able to still talk about this, what has happened to you, but always, like I could hear it, always thinking about what the listener, how they could take it in and how they could help themselves. So thanks so much. Oh, you're so welcome. And I'm honored. I'm really honored to be on your podcast. I absolutely 100% love what you were doing. <laughs> I want to say, I wish that this sort of stuff had been around when I was giving birth to my baby 30 odd years ago. Totally. Um, so I thank you because I think in the work that you are doing, I already know you are helping women to not feel alone, to feel seen and to know that they're not alone on this journey and that 
you know, there are people out here who hear them. They're real. And we do. I hear you and I, and I see you. And oh, yeah, thanks. so thank you so much for everything you do. What I love most about talking with Sandy is that she really focuses on the positives. She looks at the solutions to the potential issues that we talk about in this childbirth space because she wants a better future for her own children as well as herself. If anything came up for you while you were listening to this episode that you thought, hey, I would like to find out more about that, or I wish that either of their podcasts would talk more about this, reach out to us. Either myself or Sandy would love to hear from you because you as the listener really help guide the direction for our podcasts. This is all things women's public health. And if there's something you just want to hear more about, even if you know about it already, but you just love being part of the conversation or the topic, let us know. You can always reach out to Stephanie at bravemama.com. That's via email. Or you can use their social channels at Instagram at bravemama and send a direct message. And if something struck a chord for you that you thought was of benefit, leave a comment underneath this episode. Because what that does, it shows the other women who are searching in this space of trillions of podcast episodes and you let them know that, hey, this could be helpful for you too. So it doesn't have to be big. It can be really small. You can just put it in the comments underneath this episode. Okay, ladies. So you know that this show really does have a strong focus on prevention. So looking after your own pelvic floor should start before you even think about becoming pregnant. Did you know that the Continents Foundation of Australia have a pelvic floor health booklet? It is for expectant or new mums, and you can download it for free from continents.org.au. Or you can easily just pick up the phone and call the National Continents Helpline on 1800 33 and get free confidential advice. We would like to thank the Continents Foundation of Australia for bringing you this episode today. Until next time, bye for now. Brave,